So happy Mother's Day to all of you, uh, for sure. I remember an incident 60 years ago when I was 11 years old um, that's still very powerfully vivid for me, uh, but what I can't remember is if I told you this last month. I can't remember that. <laughs> I remember 60 years ago, though, pretty easy, because it really stands out. I did tell you this at some point in the past, and I'm straddling my bike when my dad kind of stops me and he wanted to, uh, he wanted to talk to me and show me uh, the 64 things I did wrong in the baseball game that day. You know, and he was, uh, he was a kind dad, a good dad, kind of intense when it came to these sorts of things, and so he's explaining them to me, and I'm saying, yeah, dad, okay, dad, I know, dad, yeah, dad, okay. And he just kind of went on and on, right? And from out of the back door of our house, my, my mother yells, just let the kid ride his bike. Amen. Which actually was the most protective thing I'd ever heard my mother say to me. Now she said a lot of things that I'm sure were loving and warm and kind, and, but that's, that's a vivid memory of her saying, you know what, just, just lay off the kid. He's just a kid. I do have to say to you though, that in all these years, my mother's been gone for 11 years now, I can say pretty much with certainty that I have no idea of the depth of her love for me, of her sacrifice, of what she did for me, and the worst part of it is that I never told her, probably ever, sitting down and saying, Mom, I want you to know what you meant to me in my life. I don't recall, even as a grown man and as a person in ministry, I've ever did that. Because I took her for granted. Do I regret that? Sure. Am I wounded? No. I regret that. Because you can't say certain things. Well, you can't say anything when someone's gone. You're done. Now, here's the connection to our passage in, in Ephesians 1.15. If we have a hard time understanding what humans have done for us, how much harder do we have understanding what God has done for us? I mean, the human's right in front of us. How much sacrifice was made at Calvary? How much grace has been poured down on us? We, we just don't naturally get this, and this is why... This is why Paul writes Ephesians 1.15 and following that we're going to read here in a moment. And what this is is the first of four weeks where we're going to look at the subject awake, opening our eyes to the ultimate world, okay? These are all references in scripture to things that we can now see clearly through the eyes of faith that by normal eyesight we can't see. So there's four series. Our teaching team is going to tackle this. And the first one here is in Ephesians 115 through 19. So stand with me. We're going to look at this, read it, and then try to get into the text. Paul says this, for this reason, of course, that's a reference to what he's just written in the first part of the first chapter. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. This is a gift that God would open your eyes to see the greatness of what he has done and who he is and what he said to you, right? 
having the eyes of your heart enlightened, having your eyes open to, to certain realities. And then he mentions three petitions. He says this, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Secondly, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And thirdly, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? He wants us to understand all those things with our eyes open. So let's pray and see if we can get there. Father, be with us and guide us and direct our hearts. And we're utterly dependent on you for everything. I pray that you would help us understand this text and apply it to our lives in a way that will make a difference here this morning to us. We're, we're in need of your presence and certainly of your revealing power of the truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as brilliant as Paul was, he would have flunked ninth grade English. Say, well, why is that? Well, in verses three through 14, this is in Ephesians chapter one, where he talks about every spiritual blessing, all the things God's poured out to us, electing grace, redeeming love, the sealing of the spirit, our inheritance, all of these great words. There's 202 Greek words in this section, and it's all one sentence. You think your ninth grade English teacher would have liked that? You can't do run-on sentences. You ever hear your teacher say, your sentences are too long. 202 words of nothing but uh, subordinate clauses that just kind of, it's like a, a guy riding a bike downhill. He just kept going and going faster and faster and expressing the greatness of who God is and what he's done on your behalf. And so this is how the whole book of Ephesians starts in that way. But after he says that, after he gives all the description of this great spiritual truth in Ephesians 1, he then says, you're not gonna see any of this. It will not be clear. You will not appreciate it. You will not value it. Your eyes will not be open unless you're given uh, the spirit-inspired insight that's required. And that's still true today. You're not gonna see any of this. You're not gonna care about it. You're not gonna cherish it or relish it or value it unless God goes blink and shows you exactly what these things mean. Now, a couple of observations about this prayer. First of all, the eyes of your heart. Uh, the heart is a, a reflection of the, the deepest part of you. It's, it's your core of your being. It's like your soul, okay? It's the deepest part of who you are. He's not just saying, you know, I want you to get this in your head. Although you have to know things in your head before you know it in your heart. Uh, it's not just what you know he's after. I mean, I, I remember very clearly, I used to argue with people in college that Jesus was coming back. I was on the side of saying he was coming back. And I didn't know Jesus. I was lost as a ball in tall grass as a sophomore in college. I didn't know anything about Jesus. I mean, in terms of a relationship with him. I knew about him in my head. I didn't know anything about him in my heart but I was arguing for his return. It had no impact on my lifestyle. That's head knowledge. Then there is the emotions. It's what you feel, these fleeting impulses. You, you feel something at a movie, you cry at a, at a funeral. You know, you have these things that kind of come and go. What Paul is after here is the deeper dimension of your life, what you value, what you cherish, what you desire, and what you seek. Okay, that's the affections. And this is what Paul is after. I want the eyes of your heart, what you value and cherish and seek and desire uh, to be open. 
And of course, a, a person who knows Christ is saying this, I want to know him. I need him. Without him, I have nothing. I am lost without him. That, that's, that's the heart of a Christian. When you begin feeling that way and saying those things and kind of yearning for those things, now you're in the realm of real belief, okay? This is his desire for us. Now, I want you to notice secondly in this passage that these Ephesian people, he's writing a letter to the Ephesians that were uh, up against it in many ways. They were living in a town with the, one of the seven wonders of the world, the great Artemis, uh, this uh, you know, pagan goddess, uh, Diana, right? Uh, it was uh, incredibly uh, overwhelming in, in the city of Ephesus, right? And there was social upheaval, there were riots, everything was against uh, the Christians in many ways. Uh, people were gonna come and teach them false doctrines. I mean, they had a lot of things going. They had more social unrest than you and I would ever imagine. But Paul doesn't pray for a change of the emperor. He doesn't pray for a change of their circumstances. He doesn't pray for, uh, you know, the things that settled down in the city. What's he pray for? He says, I'm praying that you would know God. Because if you know God, there's nothing else you need to <laughs> be concerned about. I want you to know him better. I want you to see the benefits of what he's done for you. That's what you all need. All of our prayers, most of our prayers are for things horizontally, you know, help this and help this person. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But they never rise above. They never say, listen, I want but the eyes of my heart to be open to see exactly what you've done for me, right? We're not really saying that. And I think we need to. So for some of you here today, Christianity is kind of dull and boring and mundane and perfunctory and predictable. You know, you, there may be some people here who are really vaguely disinterested in the faith. You know, you just have this sense that, no, I don't know about all this, but you, you know what, you're never gonna admit it. Because to admit it would be kind of revealing some things about you. But I want you to ponder your heart and say, are you, do you really want to know God? Or are you just playing around? Because true Christians want to know him and understand these things. Now let's look at these three petitions because I think these are important. First of all, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. That's what Paul's praying. And these are not easy phrases, of course, for us, but a couple terms. Hope in the Bible is not a wish. It's not a remote possibility. You know, like I hope we have a cool summer. <laughs> you know, I hope it's cool. Well, okay, good luck on that one, right? Uh, it's not just a... Uh, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. We have no control over that. Hope in the Bible is a confident expectation of future good. It's the belief that what you do not possess, you will one day possess. That's hope in the Bible, okay? Now the calling part is uh, profound. It, it's, it's, it's the God summons to believe his summons that you would believe. We call this his effective calling, okay? You know, you did not in your fleshly power decide to trust in Jesus. You know, I always struggle with that hymn, I've decided to follow Jesus. Oh yeah, okay, all right. If you did decide to follow him, it's because he did something powerful in you to begin with, okay? You just don't decide this in your flesh. You're not capable of doing that, nor am I. The effective call opens your eyes to all the privileges and benefits 
and blessings and forgiveness and adoption and sanctification and glorification. It's everything he has in time and eternity to give you. He says, this is yours. This is your calling. And it's not just pie in the sky. Look at Ephesians chapter four, verse one, where Paul says, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In other words, that's supposed to display it in your life. There's a display in your life of how you're called to live here, all right? It's not just, oh, I'm just waiting for heaven. It affects how you live today. You walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Now, here's the the practical stuff. When, When you think about it, there's two ways that people look for certainty for future good. There's two ways you look. The first one is horizontally. You look, you look at your life, you look at your future, you look down the road and go, I'm looking for future good, right? I want my life to be what I hope it will be. Uh, all non-Christians do this because this is the only life they have. It's the only word they, world they have, right? But unfortunately, there are some of you here that are doing the very same thing. You're looking for this world to be the source of your ultimate happiness. You're looking for this world to be the source of your future good. But where did you get the idea, you know, this is all of us faces, where'd you get the idea that the life you've envisioned is the life you will get? Does anybody here have that? Everyone starts out idealistically. If you're a young person, you gotta be idealistic about your life. You know, you're gonna, you're gonna grow up in this perfect home with perfect parents, right? That's what you want. I remember my my son-in-law telling me when we first got to know him, he said, I thought it was normal for a mother to drink vodka at eight o'clock in the morning. I thought all mothers drank vodka at eight o'clock in the morning. She was a raging alcoholic who died at a young age, my son-in-law's mom. She didn't have that, he didn't have that kind of life. That's what the life we want. And then we want to grow up and, and go to college and, ha- and have 4.0 grade point average, have full scholarships, get our dream job and marry our soulmate that will never hassle us or trouble us or bother us with anything, just always agree with everything we do. And then we have kids, we have these beautiful kids who are smart and healthy and they all get college scholarships to Ivy League schools. And uh, you know, then they get married to, um, um, you know, um, beauty queens or Mr. Atlases or somebody, you know, and we all live happily ever after. And I have 86 grandchildren and, and uh, we all live within two blocks of one another. And then I die at 110 after running a marathon. <laughs> That's the life I want. That's not the life you're gonna get. You see, you say, well, you know, don't be ridiculous. All right, let, let me just ask you this. Isn't every bit of anger and frustration and pain and fear and worry you have right now in your life because life isn't what you want it to be? Isn't that going on? Everything that bothers you is because life isn't what you want it to be. And we're working real hard to try to get life to be the way we want it to be. We're control freaks. Most of us. Some of us at level expect to be blessed and rewarded. People are angry at God every day because he's not coming through on the bargain to give them the life they want. There are people in his church that feel that way, that are bitter 
because their life hasn't turned out to be what they had hoped. And none of that is easy. But let me remind you that that's not God's agenda. Paul David Tripp in his book, uh, New Morning Mercy says, if God intended for all the days of your life to be easy, they would be. If that's what he intended. No, in his grace, he intends for your days to be his tools of refinement. This is, this is the agenda that we all have to say, I wanna come along that agenda. Because our agenda, the kind of life God should give us is it's comfortable, pleasurable, predictable, one in which there's lots of human affirmation and the absence of suffering. That's the life we all want. But I wanna tell you, it's not the life you're gonna get. And I can go up and down these rows and tell you right now, stories of people, and you can tell your own stories of people that have had to endure hard things that they didn't expect, and God is doing amazing things in your life as a result. So what you have to do is look vertically. If you want the ultimate expectation for good, you, you look up there and say, God, you're the one that's gonna provide that for me. You're gonna be in my place of ultimate satisfaction. There's nothing on the earth that will actually provide that for me. And so when your ultimate hope is placed in eternity, here's, here's the great thing about it. You don't put pressure on the people in your life to be your saviors. You don't put pressure on your spouse to be perfect, to always understand you, to, you know, to always affirm you, to read your mind for you. You just don't do that. You're dealing with a flawed human being next to you. You don't expect your kids to meet your needs. You want your kids to love you, you wanna have a good relationship with them. We just spent this weekend with our kids, they all flew in here for this funeral. We had as much of a good time as we could given the circumstances, we enjoy being with our kids. We don't expect them to meet our needs. I don't put pressure on them to be something that this life is supposed to offer me. And if you're a kid and you're feeling pressure from your parents to meet your needs, you're gonna have a bad time of that. You're gonna be in counseling before too long, if that's what your parents are expecting of you. So when things go right in life, and a lot of things go right, we know that, what you do is say this is a gift rather than a demand. This is a gift, and this is a, this is a down payment on the future. This is, this is what God's gonna do in spades. I mean, uh, Rebecca Manley Pippard in her book, Hope Has Its Reason, said, we all want two things in life, every human being. We wanna be happy, we wanna be loved. Anybody here not wanna be happy? Anybody here not wanna be loved? Someone said, for a man respected? We all want that. But you're not gonna get it in this world the way you want. It comes in spades in the world to come. And unless, I don't care if you're 30 or 40 or 20 or 85 or whatever you are, unless you know there's a world to come, your life is gonna be so screwed up because all your values are gonna be whacked. The church would be a pretty boring and irrelevant place if all we did is help one another cope with this life. You know, tips and techniques, and you do this, get a better marriage, and this makes you happier, and this is a better way to raise your kids. Hey, we love things like that. We love to be able to help people you know, get better at the practical things in life, but if that's all there is, this is we might as well just be a club. My, my goal is to prepare you for eternity. 
And the best way I can do that is to remind you that this world is not your ultimate home. And when you're prepared for eternity, you're going to be a lot better living in the world. All right, because I'm, I'm around too much death. I'm around too many sick people. I'm around too many people that are calling me and say, uh, my brother has just found out he has stage four pancreatic cancer or something. I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with that all the time. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm jaded, but I kind of think I'm not because I go by cemeteries every day. They're loaded with people. And every one of you are heading there. It's just a matter of when. Chuck Ryer didn't think he would die five days after his, his Easter sermon. Now he's there. So I was always intrigued by this church in California. It's a Calvary Chapel, Jack Hayford's church, okay? And so Hayford uh, pastored a church called the Church on the Way. And I thought, oh man, what a word that is, a church on the way. These people have a mission, you know, they have a, they have a ministry and they're, they're going somewhere and they're, they're on the way to heaven and, you know, it's the church on the way. And then I realized their church is located on Sherman Way. It kind of, it kind of, it kind of took the wind out of my sails a little bit there. But that's where we are. We're a church on the way. You're heading somewhere by the grace of God. That's the, that's the first petition that you'd understand the hope of your calling and that hope is rooted in God's grace, all his mercies in time and eternity. Secondly, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? This is a little bit of a hard phrase and it would seem that it means that we inherit all kinds of stuff as a result of being Christians. Uh, I took a lot of David McNeely's commentaries uh, to try to look at this. So if you, if you think that this interpretation is screwed up, you can blame him because he's got bad commentaries. That's all I can tell you. Uh, I think that it, it has more to do, it's his inheritance. The text doesn't say our inheritance, it says his inheritance. You say, well, would it, why would God have an inheritance? He doesn't need anything. He doesn't, he doesn't lack anything. He can't inherit anything. Well, actually, he has inherited something. You know what it is? Let me, let me show you what it is. Here's, here's some passages of scripture up here. For you're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his, what does that say? His treasured possession. That's like an inheritance. That's like something really valuable he has in his hand. God says this about the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, I've chosen you. Look at Deuteronomy 14.2. You're a people holy to the Lord, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. These are, these are moments where God says, oh, I value you so much, my inheritance. Now, this is carried over in the New Testament to 1 Peter 2.9. This is now talking about the church. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. These are all Old Testament terms. A people for his own possession. That's the same thing, okay. God's special treasure. Uh, one, one person likened it uh, many years ago to a, see a kid that has a cigar box in his dresser drawer and it's loaded with stuff that nobody else thinks is that important. Like a rock and a marble and a dead insect and you know, a tooth fell out or you know, just any no, baseball card, you know, any, any number of things. And you'd look at that and say, what a bunch of junk. The mother could just take it and toss it up but for the kid, He's like, this is, <laughs> yeah, that's my special treasure, man. Don't touch that. That's how God sees you as the church. That's how he sees me. 
Collectively, he sees us like that, and he also sees us like that individually, all right? Now, why does this matter? Well, throughout my Christian life, I've had to fight cynicism about the church, okay? I've had to fight, uh, I have a love-hate relationship with the church. You say, why is that? Well, when as a young Christian guy, um, I thought the church was rather irrelevant. It, it didn't seem to have a mission. It was just a bunch of religious people getting together, having a club. Uh, I was obviously wrong, but this is, this is a little bit of, you know, how, how I kind of saw things, right? And I've always felt all along that the church never really reaches the level of what the New Testament says it can be, right? So it's always like, sheesh, what's wrong with this place? These are churches I've pastored. I'm not talking about anybody else. I'm talking about things I've led. There's always this sort of cynicism about it. You know, like we're never gonna be what we're called to be, those kind of things. And Debbie's struggle with the church because she saw it as a dangerous. Uh, that's where abusers hide out. You know, these sexual predator pastor types. And, and she had some kind of an encounter with somebody like that. And then she saw the church as uh, not really doing anything. Her very religious family, her dad was always doing stuff, but it never really impacted her family life. She said, this is, she didn't even take her Bible to college when she went. So I'm done with that. This is why I promised her as a young man that I'd never be a pastor. <laughs> you can see how honest and full of character I am as a person. <laughs> I was done. Yet this broken, wounded, imperfect, stained, inconsistent bride of Christ is cherished by God. God God loves the church in a way that I never could understand, okay? And let me tell you, it's never been easier than than right now to ignore or dismiss or reject the church. There are just people that that have used this opportunity because of the pandemic to say, you know what, I'm kind of done. I'll just kind of watch things. I'll watch for 10 minutes and I'll go out and work in my garden and maybe I'll troll around here and find some really cool preacher and, you know, and, uh, you know, if I don't like it, I'll turn it off and I like being in my slippers and drinking my coffee. And and listen, I understand that. And so... There's this kind of rejection motif. It's like, well, you go, people go do that. That's fine. That's not what Jesus says about his church. He says, I love all of you. I love this body. I want to love it like he loves it. Because this is important to him, right? And look how Paul defines the church. Look at back in verse 15. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in Jesus, and your love toward all the saints. You can't, you just can't love the saints if you're watching TV. You can't just get disembodied truth. Say, oh, well, that meant a lot to me. The Christian faith is about action. (laughs) It's about engaging people personally in life. And I'm not saying anybody that's watching at home isn't doing that, I'd never say that. There are good reasons why people are staying home. And I, I respect those reasons. But if, but if the reason you're home is because you just sort of dismiss the church, it's not important, it's kind of irrelevant, it's sort of beyond you know, where you want to be and you're kind of moving on to other things and you want to call yourself a Christian, I want to tell you that you can't be. That's not Christianity. See, God loves us not because we're good. He loves us because we're lost. 
And when you get the sense that we're all these broken people, the only way to overcome cynicism is to realize your own need for grace. That's the only thing that's ever helped me, that I'm part of the problem here, okay? I'm part of the problem. My, my, own, my own brokenness is part of the problem. And only the grace of God can actually redeem me. And the worst thing that this group of people can do is be image managers. You just go around thinking I'm good and I'm nice and I'm civil and I'm moral and I, people look at me and they know that I'm a good Christian. Why don't you get rid of that garbage? And just come to the Lord and say, I am a desperate man or a desperate woman for the grace of God. If, if you're not gonna work in me um, and you're deeply in your grace, I don't have any hope. This is, the, this is the bride that Jesus loves. This is what he cherishes. And unless you embrace Romans 8, 1, you're not gonna make it. There's no condemnation for those of you in Christ Jesus. That ought to be the theme verse of our entire church. I'm just living a life without fear of judgment and rejection and you know shame because Jesus Christ has paid a price and he loves me, not because I'm any good, because his grace is sufficient. He's laid his mercy on me and he's laid it on us. God help me understand the church like he understands it and that he loves it. Now finally, he says this, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Uh, this passage teaches that Christianity is really a supernatural life, okay? The word exceedingly, look at this word here in verse 19. What is, or the immeasurable, it's the word immeasurable greatness. That, that word immeasurable is, means to be, to exceed. Um, it's the word uperbole, which we get our word hyperbole from this word. You know what a hyperbole is? It's kind of a statement that what, embellishes truth, is that right? Kind of a bigger than life, larger than life sort of statement. This is the word that's used, exceeding power. And the word power is dunamis. It's the word for explosive power. You get a word dynamite from that word. The greatest lie that can be told you is that your Christian life is an enterprise of man-made effort. You just decided to be religious and join a church you know, we can accomplish good moral things and make moral improvements by, you know, setting our minds to it. Maybe we say a little prayer along the way and that's kind of religion. I can't think of anything more boring. I don't wanna be part of a group of people that can just kind of put, pull themselves up by their bootstraps and say, well, we're religious. I don't wanna be part of an organization like that. I wanna be part of an organization that can only be explained by God. Because, because he's doing things beyond human capability. See, to the outside world, we may look like just a religious club, but I'd like to ask you, what's happening in your life that just can't be explained by human effort? That can only be explained by the power of God. And you say, well, I don't really have anything like that because we're not charismatics, you know? <laughs> we, don't, we don't have that kind of, you know, we don't talk like that. Oh, wait a minute, kidding me? I have two barriers to experiencing the power of God, and I wanna just talk about those as we close. These are two things that we think that are just kind of hanging us up. The first is we don't grasp how desperately lost we are in sin. None of us really get that. It's what sin blinds you to the reality of sin, okay? That's what it does. 
The Bible teaches that we're dead. You know what dead means? It means dead. Unresponsive. Do you know you're unresponsive to God? By nature? You don't care about Him. You are deceitfully wicked, as Jeremiah teaches. The heart's deceitfully wicked. You have no ability to understand spiritual truth. No one seeks for God. No one understands God. By nature, we resist Him. The mind of the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. This is, when you're born, this is who you are. Now, we had our two 18-month-old twins, you know, there, and now they're so cute and everything, right? They're little sin machines. (laughs) You go, oh no, he's innocent. No, they're not innocent. If you just let people grow up, they're gonna be in the same boat all the rest of us were. That is resistant to God, uninterested. First time your child lies, you know, some of you parents go, I can't believe Timmy lied, Timmy lied. What are you, nuts or something? (laughs) Of course Timmy's gonna lie. You know why? Because he's part of Adam's sinful race. We're liars. You understand what the human race is about? So let me remind you, when you believe in Jesus for salvation, that's a supernatural gift. You just didn't decide to do that. When you surrender your life to him as Lord, and you say, I want to come under your lordship. I I just want, you know, I know there's going to be conflict and there's going to be, you know, differences in family. But I want you to be Lord. that's, That's divine power. You don't have any ability to do that on your own. When you're convicted of your sin and you, you confess and repent and say, listen, I am sorry for what I said to you. I am wrong. That's not human nature that's doing that. There's something powerful at work inside you that's, that's taking something dead and making it alive. That's the power of grace working in you. When you're trusting God in the midst of painful losses, I, I can't tell you the number of people in our church that have gone through painful losses, and they still do, and they're still looking at the Lord saying, Lord, I believe you're good. That's supernatural. When you look to the Lord when there's no human reason to do so and say, I, I don't have any evidence that faith is even viable, but you know what? Where do I turn for you have the words of eternal life? I, I have nowhere else to go. That's divine grace. So understand that because of who you were by nature, to believe the things we believe is outrageous, apart from God. And then the last thing, as I close, we're too easily able to rely on our own power to make life happen. We don't know how bad we were, but secondly, we're, we're trying to make life work in our own strength. You're never gonna see the power of God if you do that. I think one of the worst bumper stickers ever invented, you know, it's not go Gators or how about them Knowles? I mean, you might, you might think that's the worst bumper sticker that's ever been created. Let me tell you the worst one. God is my co-pilot. God 
God is my co-pilot. What does that mean? You're the captain. So sit over there and shut up. I'll tell you what I'm doing here. I'm the captain. You're, you're, not, you're not the captain. You're not even in the cockpit. So if you think it's your power that's accomplishing something in your life, oh yeah, my marriage and you know, my, my work and my basically capable life of stability and, you know, and I, I'm working with my kids and you know, we're gonna make them you know, be the kind of kids. You know, you're not. Again, Paul David Tripp. We all dream of independent strength and ability. We all crave independent knowledge and wisdom, right? We all want righteousness of our own, but the fact is that not only were we not created to be independent, but also the fact is sin has ravaged us and left us even weaker and more needy than we ever imagined, all right? And he says this, the greatest danger is not your weakness. What is it? It's the delusion of your strength. That's your greatest danger. I'm capable, I'm confident, I'm able. If you don't wake up every morning and say, God, unless you do something for me, I'm not gonna make it. That's the sentiment of your heart. And the reason we say this is because the Bible is all over this theme. In uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul struggled with this. He struggled with some kind of thorn. And the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power, my dunamis is made perfect in your weakness. That could have been a physical weakness. It might be an emotional weakness. It might be a relational weakness. It might be a spiritual weakness. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Then Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. I'll boast in them. I'll say, I'll say to anybody, you know what, I'm weak. I'm a weak man! So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We don't know how to do church. We're joking about this in the first service. Dave McNeil does not do church. I've always known how to do church. He's never known how to. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't know how to do church. I've only been in this 40 years. I don't know anything. Unless God does something here, nothing's going to happen. Unless he does something in your heart, it'll be dead as a doornail. And so when you leave here today, you can say, God, thank you that you made me weak. Thank you that you showed me and I recognize my weakness because in my weakness, you might actually do something that your power might prevail in my life. That's the immeasurable greatness of his power toward you who believe. So I'd like you to be able to leave today saying, God, my hope is not in what's gonna happen tomorrow in my world. My hope is ultimately in you. You see me as this rich treasure. You've, you've inherited me and adopted me and I wanna see the church like you see it because right now I'm, I'm kind of ticked off at it. I don't like its organization, I don't like its decisions, but I'm called to love its people. And I wanna know what the power is that you have for me because I don't have any power of my own.